If you're the only one in your book club who wants to read books that will change your life, you need a new book club. And we think you found it. I'm Heather. And I'm Susan. And can we be the first to say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. Welcome back, fellow Bible book clubbers. It's Buck, the editor, here with Haley, the producer. Hello, everyone. We're excited to continue on our journey today through Genesis, but wanted to let you know that the Bible book club is on the road. So Haley and I are here in Florida, and I've got Susan and Heather here on a Zoom call, and we're talking about God's Word in different states, different time zones, and the technology is awesome. So we're excited about today. Hey, ladies, how are you? Good. Ready to go. We may sound different, but we are here. Great. All right. Well, let's get started. So first, I'm going to give you a little recap. Uh, last episode in chapter 17, Abraham and his household are circumcised. And that's just a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and then his descendants to come after him. Now, this is a big deal. They are never going to forget it, that as adults, they were circumcised. It will be a constant reminder of what God is going to do through Abraham and Sarah through this one family, not any other family. And that's why they are called the patriarchs. And Abraham really believes, maybe even just for the first time, he's believing in God and trusting in what he tells him to do. And then Abraham also, his character is being developed as just a really tenderhearted person. And he remembers his first son, Ishmael who came through Hagar, his slave. Remember, he um, had sex with his slave because Sarah was unable to get pregnant, but now she is. And God is going to bless Ishmael too. And this is Abraham's moment of really just having this care and concern for his first son that is also going to do great things. I love these next two chapters. And the reason I love them is because they're very intriguing. There's a lot going on that we may not have ever read before if we analyze things and we're going to do that. And also because it is these stranger conversations, they are going to meet strangers and the strangers turn out to be the Lord and angels. And there's this verse that's always intrigued me. It's in Hebrews 13. It says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers or by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And I have to wonder if the writer of Hebrews, who we think is Paul, was thinking of today's story, this one in Genesis 18, because Abraham is about to entertain strangers who are indeed angels. And did he know it? Do we know it? Because I'll tell you something. I, I have this I have certain points in my life where I felt like I've been prompted to do something, whether it was small or large. And I'm going to tell one time, one time I was sitting in the DMV, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles, just waiting for my turn to get my license. And there was this older man, I I was sitting in the corner. So, you know, when you're sitting in the corner, if you're on one wall and somebody's on the other wall, you're kind of almost like facing each other. Like our knees could have almost been touching, you know, but we weren't exactly, there was a table in the corner, but he was that close. And I had brought, I was reading something on my phone, you know, but I kept being prompted to like, look up and talk to the guy. And he looked kind of grumpy and older and I just didn't. And and I kept reading my phone or going, I go, come on, just talk to him. And all of a sudden his name got called and he stood up and I had this strong conviction that I missed an opportunity and it never left me. And, and that's just a super simple example of how I think sometimes um, God may prompt us to entertain. Was I really going to entertain him? No, I was just going to talk to him, but who knows what I've learned? Who knows what word 
I need to give him. Who knows if he was an angel that I was going to get something from. I'm really glad you brought up that story, Susan, because I think pop culture makes us think about angels as these little cherubs with wings and they're really not. And there's the chance that that man sitting in front of you in the DMV was an angel. And we have to be really mindful of that because we don't want to miss an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's an opportunity that an angel's prompting us to speak to someone who needs love or care in the moment, or it's actually something we need to learn. I don't know. I don't understand the mystery to all that. But I do know that today is an example where Abraham actually entertains angels. And we don't know if he recognized them right away. But in this story, I want to point out that God is seems to be with this story, drawing our focus to attitudes of the heart. So we're going to learn a lot of things in this stranger encounter. But one of the overlying attitudes I don't want to lose, and this is something Heather is always hot on, is what was the attitude of the heart? And that's why I really thought of you in this. Remember when we left Ur, the city of Ur, in chapter 12, when Abraham was called out to leave his family, he brought only two people who who we know about, Sarah and Lot, that were family. It says he brought Sarah and he brought Lot. Now we know he must have brought his servant because at one point he considers maybe that his servant is going to be his heir. But specifically in chapter 12 were these three people, Abraham, Sarah, and Lot. And today in part one of these stranger encounters, we're going to talk, we're going to see Abraham's heart and Sarah's heart. Next week, I'm going to cover Lot, which you know is a great story. Today though, we're going to cover part one of this story. And this whole entire story, these next two weeks, cover one day, two big conversations, and this visit from these three strangers. So think about that. This is a very small capsule in the big scope of the entire Bible, but it's really got some hmm, very curious things. So here we go. First part, the stranger's approach. And we have this example of what I call radical hospitality. So if you're someone who likes to entertain or doesn't like to entertain, know that it is very much a biblical concept. And you can see that Abraham rocks it. Verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. All right, we're really going to analyze verses this week because we have these little hints that don't say, like it doesn't say, Abraham looked up and saw the Lord and um, the Lord was one of three men standing there. It doesn't, it's a little unclear. So what does this mean? Yes, the Lord was one of the three. And we know that because A, it says the Lord spoke and a couple, we're going to read a couple things. So we know God was one of them because he is going to do a lot of the talking, all of the talking pretty much, except when a couple times it says one of them said this. So God's going to do a lot of the talking. And he then again is also, as we continue on next week, he's going to have a private conversation with Abraham where it specifically says that the other two men went on and Abraham and the Lord had a conversation. So you definitely get know that there were three of them. One was God. And when we go to um, next week, God and Abraham are going to stay behind and the two men or angels are going to move on to Sodom. So we know there's three. Now, what is this? This is called a theophany. A visible appearance of God like this is called a theophany. So if you ever hear that big word, you'll know what it means. And throughout the Old Testament, God portrays his presence to his people in various ways. They are all theophanies. In this case, you know, when Abraham sees him approaching, he looked like a man. Sometimes he's a cloud for Moses or a burning bush. There's just lots of different cases I could have pointed out. But know this, the ultimate climactic theophany in history is God becoming man in the form of Jesus Christ. 
So just a little big word stuff there for you. So continue on. When Abraham saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried to the tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, Get three says of the finest flour and knead it to bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. Right. Abraham is providing for us an example of radical hospitality. It was in those days cultural to provide shelter to travelers. And they probably welcomed travelers because they brought news from other places. And so you just wanted them to sit and rest and refresh and eat a real meal and maybe clean up a bit. But Abraham's urgency demonstrated that he recognizes that this is a special priority. He rushed out to meet them. This was not casual, gentle hospitality like, oh, hey, look, somebody's coming. And and remember, he's king of the hill. He's got lots of servants. He could have sent somebody out there like, oh, go check out who these guys are coming. You know, he doesn't. He personally is almost kind of looking for them. Then Abraham shows great honor. So again, we have to guess that he recognized who this was because it says he bowed low and entreated them to stay. He didn't just say, hey, would you like to stay? He pretty much begs them, you know, let water be brought. If I found a favor in your eyes, do not pass me by. He knows. Did he recognize the importance of them? I think so. I think this is just little hints. Then Abraham ran to prepare fresh meat, which was above and beyond. Traditionally, culturally, they did offer milk. They offered, you know, bread, but meat was again, a big treat. And he offered his best. Again, if he knows this is God, is he bringing forth his first fruits? The best. He's a shepherd. So his best would have been some meat as a shepherd. Abraham's heart is revealed in his actions. And that's what I want us to see. His whole attitude, his approach, his deference is a sharp contrast to next week when the men of Sodom are going to rush out to meet these same strangers, but for radical hostility. We are seeing radical hospitality. Abraham's hospitality is also a contrast compared to Lot's hospitality, which we're going to see next week is a little bit lukewarm, like his faith. So Susan, do you think that Abraham knew that one of these men was God? I think as they approached, yes. I do think he, um, you know, just that bowing low, it maybe he thought they were kings at first, or maybe, I don't know, did they have a special glow? They're angels, guys. So, you know, we're going to see that did the, the men have- DMV, and Did the guy at the DMV have a special glow? <laughs> no, he looked old and cranky. <laughs> so maybe it was, you know, the less it was for me, I don't know. But I do think um, even when they go to Sodom, we're going to see that they were attractive, like, you're going to see what happens then. So there must have been something above average about these three guys. And I think, you know, sometimes your your heart, the heart speaks, you know, and you just have a feeling. And I think he he's showing, I think, great effort. I think he knew. I think the closer they got or the more he talked to them, you know, and again, we only get snippets of the conversation. We're going to find out. All right. So there you go. That's my kind of the first big thing is I want us to see that radical hospitality. 
And, and, you know, do we offer that? You know, when we meet somebody, do we offer radical hospitality? Are we all closed down? It's hard today to be really open, but it's important. All right. So here we come. Stranger conversation number one. And I called this, it's promise time. So that gives you a hint about what the whole purpose of this conversation is. So, you know, it says in the verses we just read that he runs to Sarah and he, he tells her to prepare the bread and, um, and then he goes to have meat prepared and then he probably comes back. And so meanwhile, Sarah and team are hard at work. I want to point out that this is for hours because needing bread, waiting for it to rise, killing, skinning a calf. How long does that take? I don't know. But the next words we read must be hours later because they're about to have the meal and we know the meal would have taken hours to prepare. Um, And so the main point of this conversation is for Abraham and Sarah to understand the time has come. And let's remember, they've been waiting for years to have a child, like decades. So the whole reason for this visit in this first conversation is that it's time. And I think it's cool that God thought it was important and important enough that he goes himself to talk to Abraham. So continue on to verse eight. Verse eight. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Okay. So this does not sound like a big deal. Like you've probably read this before if you've ever read the Bible and thought, oh, no, no big deal. But I just want to pause a second. Why is Sarah in the tent? Why is Abraham serving in her place? And why would the Lord slash angels ask where she is when they know the answer? This is not a random question. We have been in this exact situation twice before where God is asking a question that he obviously knows the answer to. First, in Genesis 3, 9, God asked Adam and Eve, where are you? Another where question. After they ate from the forbidden tree, when he knew exactly where they were. In Genesis 4, 9, God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? After he had killed Abel, God knew he had killed Abel. This is the third time God asks where someone is when he clearly knows the answer. And all three were loaded questions. By asking, God was forcing them to acknowledge that he, the omniscient God of the universe, knows what they have done and it's time to confess. It's almost like if you have kids, you know, you know what they've done, but you still ask them, what did you do to your brother? It's it's the way we get someone, we give someone the opportunity to say, okay, I did it, which is so much better than you literally forcing it out of them. And, and I think bu- is why God is testing, he's checking their heart. This is why I like the heart check all, all the time um, because it's, God's not looking for a perfect person. He's just looking for somebody who in your heart, you do you in your heart know the right or wrong thing? And whether or not you did the right or wrong thing, are you willing to come and say, hey, um, I need to turn from that. And that's what true repentance is, is turning from what you did. Exactly. Exactly. In both of the two cases we already studied, what they had done is they had disobeyed. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they disobeyed. So God confronted them. God told Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. But he didn't do what was right. He killed Abel. So God confronted him. So the question here is, where is Sarah and what have she and Abraham done? 
want that God is confronting them about. And I'm telling you, I've read this so many times and never made that connection. So this was a Bible bender for me a couple of years ago when I first figured this out. But let's let me just rewind it for you a second, because we're going to dig into this to figure out exactly what God is trying to get Abraham. What heart issue is he bringing to the front for Abraham and Sarah? And I'm going to get, spoiler alert, different hearts. We're going to find out they have different hearts. Remember, we're not covering Lot today. We're just covering Abraham and Sarah, and we're going to see it. So if this were a play, not a book, I know it's a book club, but let's pretend if this were a play, what we would see is that we're not getting right here and just reading is that the look that God gave Abraham when he asked, you know, there would be a look, Abraham, where is Sarah? We would hear the tone of the characters and it would be so much easier to understand. Oh, let's not even say a play. Let's say this is a movie because you know, in a movie, they would zoom in on God's face and then they'd zoom in on Abraham's face. And we'd have this meeting of their eyes of intensity and a lot more being said that we would know is being said. And we don't get that in reading it, but I promise you there was a lot more being said in their eyes. And if we had that movie, it would be easier to understand the eternal cultural implications of this question. This is not- Was she supposed to be in the tent or was she not supposed to be in the tent? Okay, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. All right. Because this is a book, we have to read between the lines to make sense of why God was asking, where is Sarah? So here's the theory from the commentaries that intrigues me the most and really plays out knowing the character of God and the character of Abraham and the character of Sarah. And it, I love this. So let's shed some light. Let's revisit the details of this day. First, I kind of mentioned this. This was not a quick visit because it wasn't a quick meal. So there's a lot more than transpired that we don't know about. There's like at least yeah, five or six hours in there. So they were yeah. hanging out playing dominoes for a while. While exactly. She- <laughs> exactly. The strangers must have been waiting, been with Abraham for hours. We know this because Abraham tells Sarah in verse six, quick, get three C's of the finest flour, knead it, make bread. And then he runs and selects a choice, tender calf. Like I said, it takes long to prepare. Well, let me just tell you something. A C is two gallons. Three C's would be six gallons of flour. We're talking like loads of loaves. I don't know why they were making Hungry so men, I guess. Yeah. Uh, or is, did they, you know, was he feeding the whole tribe early? Were they all going to sit at the feet of the Lord and kind of like, you know, we had the main tent, like a banquet hall, and then everybody else was going to get to listen to? I well, don't know what's going on. If they're as big as my 15-year-old, she probably needs to cook that much food. Exactly. So, so we have, we can assume Sarah has a team and she's doing, five to seven hours of prep work. So what we know is she sets to work. This sets her emotion. He's urgent. Her beloved husband, who's like the king of this, you know, four, 600, 800 people that are in his group. And she sets to work. The next thing we learn hours later is that Abraham, not Sarah is serving the meal. All right. Her absence must have prompted the strangers to ask where she is. The fact that the strangers ask alludes to the possibility that she should have been there, perhaps either eating with them or perhaps acting as hostess and serving. There is culture stuff out there that maybe, you know, women didn't eat with men or maybe they didn't serve. But the very fact that they ask alludes that, why haven't we seen Sarah? Where's Sarah? So was there an unusual reason for her absence? Did something happen while she was preparing the meal? All right, moving on. Abraham's response is uncharacteristically cryptic. All he says is, she's in the tent. This is rather curt and evasive compared to 
the flowery deference he had addressed them with early in the chapter. Oh, Lord, if I found favor in your eyes, yada, yada, let me wash your feet. By now, it seems he knows this is God. So why would he be so evasive? Like Cain, who said, am I my brother's keeper? She's in the tent. You know, you think he would have, Abraham could have said, oh, Lord, I apologize. She's not feeling well. Or she burned her hand cooking 42 loaves of bread or whatever the excuse was. You would think if God asks you a question, you and we know Abraham was much more deferential before that he would have kind of elaborated. He wouldn't just said, she's in the tent. She's in the tent. She's in the tent. I don't know the tone in which he said it. So did his tent in the tent have its own explanation that any Israelite would have known from that phrase? Did like, uh, did he say it like, uh, she's in the tent? Like, did that mean something? Was in the tent a polite way to say she was indisposed in a way that was not discussed at the table? Because guess what? Culturally, when women were confined to the, their tent, it happened monthly when they had their period because they were thought to be unclean. So was she's in the tent, kind of like their way of saying she's got her period, you know, or we used to say, I'm not even going to say what we used to call it, but you know what I mean? Is that what he was saying? Oh God, she's in the tent. Like we can't so talk that, about it. <laughs> that is the Bible bender then, because those are things that culturally we would never understand. No, you know, but, I almost read it like a defensive thing. Like, oh, she's in yes, the tent. Don't, yes, don't even ask. Yes, but that's he crazy. made the thing. So check this out. Um, if he was, if in the tent was a clear explanation of her absence, wait a minute, that's impossible. She's 90. How could in the tent mean Sarah could, how could she be menstruating? She would have been in menopause. And we get that very confirmation in just a verse and a half. Read verse 10 for me. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and the way of women had ceased to be Sarah. Other versions of this verse, the way of women had ceased to be Sarah, are also translated as it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women, or even Sarah had stopped menstruating. So we know for a fact, Sarah was in menopause. And yet Abraham said, Sarah's in the tent, which may have culturally meant she was, she got her period. And then the verse before the way of women had ceased to be Sarah, Sarah's listening says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife will have a son. So what could have happened between the hours of making bread and dinner that required Sarah to be in her tent instead of serving. Well, one theory is Sarah got her period and Sarah became unclean. At the ripe old age of 90, her womb was regenerated to menstruate again. And of course, God knew why she was in the tent when he asked the question, because he was the one that regenerated her womb. And God is sitting there confronting Abraham about it. Why? Because he and Sarah disobeyed him by trying to have a son without God. And the consequence for that action in the form of Ishmael is still with us today in the Middle East. So if this were a movie... I like to picture the in-between moment like this. Somewhere between baking all that bread and dinner, God regenerates Sarah's womb and she starts to bleed. She's scrambling to bring honor to her husband by preparing this feast worthy of the Lord. And this is the worst possible time for 
for a bodily function. Abraham is oblivious as he is in deep conversation with God outside the tent on all kinds of things, theology. At some point, Abraham gets up and Sarah grabs him as he walks by the tent in panic frustration and literally screams at him, I can't go to dinner. You've got to serve. I'm unclean. I'm bleeding. And he goes, what? What? What'd you do yourself? And Sarah replies, no, I'm not sure. I I think I cut my period. Abraham looks at her like she is crazy. You haven't had a period in decades. And she says, I know, I know you're right. It can't be my period. I must have overdone it with all this cooking. I I, I just need to rest. And Abraham goes, calm down. Don't worry. You stay here. I've got this. I, I can serve. And Abraham races back to his guests muttering, we are getting too old for all of this. Of all the times for this to happen, did it have to be when we just happen to have God here for dinner? Abraham takes over the meal. Everyone is served. And just as Abraham's starting to relax again, it happens. The guest turned to him and pointedly asked, Abraham, where is Sarah? A hush falls over the table as everyone leans in to listen because this is not a random question. With a jolt, Abraham's heart burns within him. The Lord's eyes meet his and Abraham knows that they know what he knows. Sarah is in her tent because what God promised is already happening. What was physically impossible is now miraculously possible. Sarah's womb has been restored. She can and she will have a child. And as Abraham looked into the eyes of God, I have to wonder, could he read all the other questions that were there? Did God's piercing gaze say what was never spoken? Abraham, why didn't you believe me when I promised you would have a child? Why did you think your solution would be greater than my miracles? Why did you disobey? What then happened in Abraham's eyes? What did his eyes reflect? Did he feel shame and blame like Adam and Eve? Was he angry and untruthful like Cain? I think our main man, Abraham's actions were an improvement over his predecessors. His reaction is not recorded, but we can assume that he received the correction because in chapter 1, 21, he's going to obey God in regard to Ishmael and a very heartbreaking move. Abraham's heart was good. He believed, he received, his eyes reflected that he probably, he probably was very sorry for what he had done. However, what about Sarah? How did Sarah react? Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? At this point, Sarah's just thinking what a joke this is. It's not my period. This just can't be. This is a joke. Who are these people? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. All right. What can I say about this sassy Sarah? She may be old in years, but she is still young in her faith and way behind Abraham. She has not learned, even in this little snapshot, that God sees her. She obviously didn't recognize the Lord in these three men because if if God knew that she was being regenerated, if she hears you're going to have a child and and you and you recognize the Lord, you would have believed. But she 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 has not learned that God sees her even when she says, "I didn't laugh." I mean, of course God saw her. This is 
such a sharp contrast to me to even Hagar, who seems to be more spiritually mature at this point. And Hagar wasn't even a Jew. But remember, in chapter 16, Hagar meets God in the desert and says, I have now seen the one who sees me. And yet Sarah is literally looking at the Lord. She has that physical manifestation that she's starting to bleed and she still doesn't believe. I also love this. I love that God is almost kind of like insulted in verse 13. He says, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child? And and he asked this of Abraham, not Sarah. He looks at Abraham like, what the heck's wrong with your wife? How can she not? What more do I? have to do? How could she doubt after I just regenerated her withering womb that I can do this through her? Seriously, Abraham, what do I have to do to make her believe? He's almost kind of mad at Abraham. Like I'm over this girl. Sarah is following a not so great Eve pattern of fear and blame. And she tries to cover up a lie, which is kind of like both Cain and Eve. Um, She's just not on board like Abraham is. I love this because God is so good and he does what he's going to do no matter what the players do. In this case, although God may get frustrated with our lack of faith, he's patient to wait for us as in the case of Abraham. He waited for Abraham. Remember, we just came off the big covenant and the circumcision. And now we know Abraham knows and he's going to trust and he's going to lean on God. And so he waited for Abraham's heart to get to that point. Again, he sees our heart. We cannot fool God. We can fool our family. We can fool our friends. We can God. And God saw that Abraham was ready. And he is now coming down from heaven to meet with Abraham in Abraham's tent and tell him, this is the time. Congratulations, buddy. You made it. In the case of Sarah, he's going to do what he's going to do through her, despite the fact that she doesn't have the faith. So he waited patiently for Abraham. He's not going to wait for Sarah. He's going to do it anyway. And I love that about God and the way that we can know, even if I don't get it right, God's going to use me. And Sarah did not get it right. He still uses her. Abraham got it right. God's moving forward. He wanted Abraham to learn a lesson in there. And it kind of says that, you know, maybe the lesson was a little more for Abraham than for her, but it doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry if, if you know, God does everything perfect in our kids' lives or our life. He's still going to use us despite our mistakes. And he's going to use others. He's going to use unbelievers. Sarah is an unbeliever at this point. At least in this circumstance, she may have believed in God, but in this circumstance, she's not trusting him to do this. And he's still going to He's frustrated, clearly. He's annoyed with her, but he's going to use her. And and that gives me such hope in everything I do and every mistake I make that he's going to make it all happen. We don't really have to. Yeah. And that's a recurring theme that's going to happen over and over in the Bible. God's going to use these people who maybe didn't do the right thing always, but have their heart in the right place. And that's an encouragement to me, I know. Well, Susan, this is why I love experiencing the Bible with you, because I, I will never read that one sentence the same again. Oh, good. (laughs) And and this is why. Welcome to the club. (laughs) If you are here, we are your people. You are our people. You want to expand on all of the knowledge that's in the Bible and you want to really know what was going on. um, That's why stick with us. And every single... And and know this, if you're ever hiding from God and he can't reach you, he's going to come to you and go, where are you? Where are you? And why are you there? Welcome to the club. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club.
New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.